As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It was really sort of a result of watching my daughter increasingly struggle with grades, anxiety. All of us had kids that were experiencing the same difficulties with the virtual learning, with you know anxiety and other issues. And yet these things were either never being discussed or when parents would bring them to the board, they were sort of just sort of dismissed. So we asked the question. On Christmas Eve, a nice little present from the district, which was, we have your data and it's going to cost you $500 in order to get it. And our jaws dropped. It was worse than we ever imagined it could be. I mean, what parent can shell out $500 to get data about things that the school district should know and should be able to tell you instantaneously when you ask? The first thought that comes to your mind is that's outrageous. After a fight to get information about their children's schools, parents say they've discovered the power of public records. But are public records truly public if the public can't afford them? Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hi, Amanda. We are recording this episode for release on Thursday, April 29th. Today on Open Record, we are talking about our namesake, Open Records, specifically an issue that is really hitting home right now for Wisconsin parents. Tell me about that. I know, Amanda, this is a subject you've put so much work into, uh, the, the school issue in general, dealing with pandemic learning and learning loss. But this specific issue is really central to this whole series of stories you've done because this was a series that was born of access to public records. That's right. So it started, and if you listen to our last podcast episode, you know that our recent project on how students are doing during pandemic learning was really inspired by parents, specifically a group of parents in Waukesha. Together, they requested public records to show a lot of different student metrics. Basically, as you heard at the beginning of this episode, they were kind of saying, hey, my child's struggling. Okay, my child's struggling. But they said the whole time the school board reaction had been the kids are doing fine, they're resilient, they felt like their concerns were getting brushed off. And in the meantime, they're watching their kids struggle with hybrid and virtual learning. So they just wanted to know how are students across the board doing grades-wise. So this public records request gets filed in no this past November. And in December, that's when they find out, okay, the school district says the data is ready and it's going to cost more than $500 for us to get. And at that point, there were so many people invested in getting this information, they were able to basically crowdfund that open records request. So parents were chipping in to make sure that they could get that data and they got it. 
the day of a board meeting. They presented the data to the school board. That night, the school board voted to go back to fully in-person learning. And that may sound like this great victory story for the parents, but it's not. And the parents will be the first to tell you that it's not because the underlying issue is that in Wisconsin, there are fees that the government can charge you when it comes to locating a record. And these fees, it's not just five bucks here, 10 bucks there. A lot of times they can get into the hundreds of dollars. And when you don't have groups of parents that can help make that more affordable, and that's only you know a doable situation every so often, then it can block the public from seeing what's in these public records. So that's something that we took an interest in as its own issue, not just as a, hey, parents wanted this information and they had to pay a lot of money to get it type of thing. It, this is a, a, an ongoing issue, obviously, for those of us in the news business who make a lot of these types of requests. And and so a lot of times for maybe listeners or viewers at home, they go, OK, well, why do I care that that's your thing? It's inside baseball. But this is a situation that really highlights how important this can be to the average television viewer or, or podcast listener, because this these are the records that involve the achievement and, and, and learning of students all across the state of Wisconsin, public schools, obviously private schools are dealing with many of these same issues, but public schools are subject to these open records. And these parents in Waukesha, they they sort of won this battle, this one battle, you know, there's the larger war. They were able to get the records they needed for a substantial fee, this 500 and something or whatever it was, dollars. Um, they sort of crowdfunded that request. You can't do that all the time. I mean, this isn't the only time records will be kept by the Waukesha School District and this won't or any other district and this won't be the only time that parents might be interested in what's in those records and how many times can parents keep coming back time and time again and crowdfunding open records requests the money's going to run dry pretty quickly that's right and that's what we found when we took on our open records requests for this school project and we sent the requests out to the 10 largest school districts in our region, it wasn't just Waukesha that initially came back with a fee. Uh, we had Wauwatosa come back with an almost $700 fee. So this is, some, even though we were requesting the same data from every district, so this is something that happens across the board. And even recently in Waukesha, a parent sent me an open records request. This parent wanted um, to look at disciplinary records of school district employees. And the parent originally filed a more sweeping request um, for disciplinary records for all employees and kept narrowing it down um, to try and get the location fee down. And even the most recent narrowed down portion of the request, which was just give me the disciplinary records for any one employee between this, you know, five month span in 2017. The district estimated that would take more than 200 hours to find at a cost of almost $9,000. So while these are these disciplinary records are technically accessible to the public, they are technically open, there's transparency. In practice, there's no transparency because you're saying even limiting it to a single employee for a limited period of time was going to be thousands of dollars. Now, that's obviously, it has the effect of of blocking access to those kinds of records. Now, 
you, you referred to this location fee, and I want to talk about what that is and why it exists. And, and I know there are both arguments for and against it, but if you really go back in time, I don't know that we used to hear as much about location fees because it used to be the biggest impediment was copying fees, copying things to paper. And obviously there was a time when records were all stored in paper form and therefore using a copy machine and the staff time to make copies and the ink to print out those copies and the paper that those copies are printed on, that cost real money. And if an individual was requesting that a government office spend lots of money on paper and ink and time and other things, then there was at least some expectation that you're going to pay for what you're asking for to a degree. Now, we live in, a, in an era now where paper copies and ink are unnecessary because most of these records are kept electronically. So in theory, emails are free, PDFs are free. Why aren't the records free? Well, and that's a good question. So the, basically, Wisconsin law says that a government agency can charge you for the cost of locating a record if that cost is $50 or more. Locating, just, I don't mean to interrupt you, but locating a record, what does that mean? So it's basically just the, that's that's not the copies, that's not, you know, the postage, that's not uh, the redaction um, of any records. Actually, in Wisconsin, government agencies are not permitted to charge you for the time they spend redacting records. This is just to find the record that you are seeking. Now, over the years, that has been interpreted to mean the staff time. So, for example, if uh, I request, uh, you know, some a, a batch of emails from a public agency and they determine, okay, that's going to take two hours of staff time to locate. This isn't for the printouts of the emails. This is just for the time they spend to locate it they might take someone who is salaried at $65,000 a year and then basically break down that salary into what we would think of as an hourly fee and say, okay, this is going to take 30 something dollars an hour, two hours. So that puts us above that $50 threshold. So now we can charge you 60 something dollars just for us to search for these records. We've run into some really interesting scenarios with these location fees. So, for example, I requested emails from one police department that said that they house all of their emails, every all of the, the search for emails, everything is an outside IT vendor that contracts with the police department. So without even knowing if there are any emails responsive to my records, they would charge us two hours of location time just for that outside IT department to search through their records. In Wisconsin, there are also many cases where the government agency can require prepayment before they give you those records. So as one open records lawyer that we talked to pointed out, you could be in a situation where you have not seen a single record. You don't even know if this is exactly what you're looking for, and you're asked to pay hundreds sometimes thousands of dollars. It so does, you're paying for whatever's behind door number three without being able to see what's behind door number three. Correct. Now, the public agencies will tell you, look, 
these requests take a lot of time. They're taking our staff away from other things. And one thing I've heard from a lot of records custodians is why should the taxpayers be paying for Amanda St. Hilaire's open records requests? Well, and, and, I, and I imagine that argument is that if I'm a school district employee and, and I'm paid to work for the Waukesha School District and all the people of the district, but Amanda St. Hilaire is going to take up a couple of hours of my time, well, then you should compensate the district for the work that could otherwise be done for the rest of the taxpayers. What's the problem with that argument? Well, there, open records advocates will tell you there are a couple problems with that argument. One, the, the premise of the open records law, and it's right there kind of at the beginning of the law in the mission statement, where it, sa it says providing public records is part of the routine duties of government. So if something is part of your routine responsibility, the question is, if you can then charge extra for it, don't those two things kind of conflict with each other, right? It's either routine or it's extra. And so if it's routine, it should be something that you are already doing. That's what the open records advocates argue. They also argue that, you know, saying this is a request for one person is a misunderstanding of what public records do. Because if it's a public record, that means no matter who's asking for it, it's something that's in the public interest. So you are filling the request, not behalf on that one individual for however they want to use the information, but on behalf of the public in general, because this is the idea that the public should be able to see this information. But obviously there, there is a place you have to draw the line somewhere, right? Because for instance, if you were to say, I want every email ever sent or received by the Milwaukee Public School District and all employees since the beginning of time, they would say that's nuts. That would take forever and, and we would have to hire entirely new waves of staff to, to comply with that. So while that may technically fall under routine duties, there is a limit. So the, isn't the question really where you draw that line? Sure. And there are mechanisms in the law that already draw that line. So a public agency can already say they can deny your request. They can say, look, your request would bring our office to a grinding halt to fulfill it. And and I've had requests denied on those grounds um, where they say this is just this is too broad. And there's case law that allows them to say this is overly broad. This is not a reasonable request with reasonable limitations. That already exists. The location fee, in theory, in theory is the key phrase here, is not supposed to cut down on the number of records requests you get because it's not supposed to be designed to turn requesters away. But that ends up being what happens when then you get charged with $500 here or $700 there. Now, Wisconsin is not the only one that allows the charge of this type of fee. We went through. It's amazing the work you do for one line of track in an investigative story, Brian, in, and you know this all too well. We went through the open records law for every state and found at least 30 that to varying degrees allow similar charges for locating records as Wisconsin. That, for that one line of track, that's the kind of thing that some nonprofit organization might have a whole team of people working <laughs> on for a month. Yes. And you had to find out how many states do this for this one line in the story. Yes. Um, and so all of them do, everyone does something different. So some allow the charge, but they cap it at a certain amount or they cap it at a certain hourly rate. Um, but there are several that don't allow this charge at all. And I'm very familiar with that 
because for several years I lived and worked in the state of Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania specifically does not allow public agencies to charge for staff time, the labor itself of responding to a records request. Now I can confirm government has not come grinding to a halt there. Um, and actually in a survey of municipalities, Pennsylvania's Office of Open Records found that more than 90% of the government agencies um, that they surveyed, and this was thousands, thousands of agencies, more than 90% said they spent five hours or fewer a week on open records requests. And more than 60% spent one hour or fewer a week on open records requests. So this idea that, oh my goodness, we need to charge this fee or we'll be drowning in all of this additional work. When you look at the reality of the time that agencies tend to spend on it, it ends up not really adding up to that. Well, I, I want to I want to bring the attention to something before we move too far on from this, because you did something to illustrate this point uh, <laughs> in the story that I thought was uh, I got a good laugh out of it, actually. And maybe it was easy for me to laugh at because it's, it's my boss. It's your boss, too. But this idea of charging extra for something that is supposed to be routine you decided to involve our news director, Jim Wilson, to illustrate the point. Tell me, first of all, why you did that and then how you pulled it off. <laughs> so whenever we're putting a story like this together, I don't want it to just be about paper and ink, right? And so we had the parents who were speaking to their own experiences of being charged hundreds of dollars. I think that's something a lot of people can relate to. But when figuring out the why this matters and, and why people should care, the thing I kind of kept coming back to was this theme of you, the public, you're the boss, right? The law says these records belong to you. The law says these are the employees that you pay. And so when you think about it in that sense, it's like, okay, the public's the boss. It's You can make the argument that it's kind of absurd that a boss would have to pay their own employees to do routine work to pull records that the public owns. Like that just, that that seems kind of like a, a crazy underlying theory, but it's the argument that open records advocates use when they're saying, hey, um, this is something that, that we should be taking another look at. So I called up Jim, our boss, and I said, I want to make a point for a story I need your reactions to this to be authentic. So I can't tell you what it's about. I can't tell you the questions I'm going to ask you, but can I record a Zoom call with you? And Jim, to his credit, goes, sure, how does 8 a.m. sound? <laughs> he said, I like trying new things. I said, okay, great. So I called him and I just said, hey, boss, uh, you know, I'm one of your salaried employees. If you ask me to do one of my routine duties, how much extra do I get to charge you for it? And, uh, you know, Jim and in his most Jim of ways said, you get to charge me nothing. And he went on to explain why. He said, you know, you agreed to a salaried pay and you don't get to change the rules in the middle of the game. Now, as I'm watching this, even knowing sort of what had happened here, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, OK, but but this sort of looks like it could have been a setup. Like you told Jim what to say to try to make this point. But then he sort of says at one point at the end, like, so what was this all about? <laughs> yes, that was legit. Right. He had no idea why you were doing. This. He had no idea why I was doing that. And I 
I wanted, I didn't want it to be this scripted back and forth. I didn't want him to know. I thought I knew what he was going to say, but I didn't want him to, to say anything he wouldn't ordinarily say because I wanted to preserve the integrity of that for the point of this story, which is, you know, if, if you can't, if, if, if you can't charge your boss for doing your routine responsibilities, why does the government get to charge you? And that's a point that the open records experts that we interviewed for the story brought up time and time again. Tom Kamenek, an open records attorney, pointed out, he said, you know, if this is a salaried employee doing the search for public records, this is someone who you are already paying. You're not paying them anymore. The government isn't incurring any additional cost for them to search for these records. So in essence, by paying extra, you could make the argument they're profiting off of your open records request, which isn't something that's supposed to be happening. Um, well, and, and really, if you step back, and I know you and I could probably talk for hours about open <laughs> records issues, but when you step back for a moment, what really is at the heart of this is the idea of whether or not these records are in fact truly public, whether in fact they are truly accessible, and just how much cost becomes a barrier to accessing these things. And I think back to, it's not that there aren't still ATM fees, but there was a time when ATM fees were growing out of control. And, and there was sort of a public backlash to the notion that I have to keep paying more and more money to get access to money that I already own. So why should I have to pay these exorbitant fees to access my own money? In a sense, that's what's happening here is it's the members of the public, these parents and these school districts saying, why are you charging me so much money to access records that under the law I already own, that I already have a right to see? And you're saying, no, 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 you have to pay hundreds of dollars for the privilege of seeing these records. That seems to be really the theme here is, is to what degree are location fees being used to block public access. That's right. And one parent brought up a, a great point uh, that open records advocates have been kind of drumming into for years, which he said, he asked, how is this not information you could instantly look up, you know, when they were talking about student performance? So when you have the existence of a location fee, you're not exactly incentivized to keep your records easy to find, right? Because you can charge for 18 hours of work of going through all paper files, even though we're in the year 2021 and you should probably have some things digitized by now. But there's no incentive to go through and do that if you can charge X amount of dollars for it. And so that's something that parents brought up as well, where if you're saying it's going to take so long to track this, then we have a problem with that too, because that means that you're not already looking at the data. And Bill Leaders, the president of Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council pointed out, he said, I think a lot of times the agencies are over-interpreting, sometimes purposefully so, these requests in order to charge. And we experienced that. So when we asked Waukesha originally for records, they wanted to charge almost $200. And I was saying, well, you just provided this to parents. This charge doesn't make sense. Well, it turns out a lot of that charge was them going through and doing these calculations that I never asked them to do. And so after hours of going back and forth, I finally figured this out and said, no, 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 give me the raw data. And it ended up being free. So I, Amanda St. Hilaire, the reporter, can sit there 
you know, for hours and figure out how to get a fee down. And I use the law every day and I know how to do it. The average parent sitting at home doesn't have that kind of time and probably doesn't use the law that often. So they don't know that they can push back. They often don't know how they can push back. So then if they don't have the $200, they're just going to walk away. In the case yeah, well, of- the, the average parent of a public school student doesn't know the case law to cite that Amanda St. Hilaire knows. They don't know what areas to push back on. So if you get a bill from the school district that says this is going to cost $8,000 to get those personnel files you've asked for, you either pay the 8000 or maybe you take them to court, but those, those are about your only options. And even taking over location fees, uh, taking it to court can be challenging. Wisconsin's open records law has very few enforcement mechanisms. Really, the only enforcement mechanism is going to court. Or in our case, we, we have one that other people don't have, and you've used this to great effect. <laughs> we have the power of telling people about it. Correct. As we're doing right here, as you've done with this series, that's really where uh, sort of some of the power comes in here is letting people know what your government officials are doing and not doing when it comes to public access to records. Absolutely. So, you know, for example, in a case like Wabatosa School District, we requested student performance metrics. They came back. They said it was going to take 18 hours. It was going to be almost $700. Based on how they broke down that cost, we narrowed it down to just two student performance metrics. We wanted GPA. We wanted percentage of students failing one or more classes. They still told us it was going to take two hours of search time. It was going to cost $75. We said, fine. We paid that. After they did the search, they gave us the records, but then they came back and said, Oh, by the way, it actually took us 6.25 hours to do the search. Here's a bill for an additional $322. So now they're saying basically this is $400 to get these two student performance metrics. And they actually, the week our story aired, sent us a second notice because we haven't paid it and we're, we're not going to pay that. Well, it turns out that weeks before they had done this search, the superintendent had presented almost identical data at a school board meeting. So they already had this information in a PowerPoint. I mean, it literally would have been easy for for the percentage of students failing one or more classes. They could have emailed me a PowerPoint. And instead, they went through and pulled all all the raw data. No one ever gave me that option. So the general parent who's dealing with this what are they going to what are they going to do you can talk about taking them to court cuz you could argue that they charged you a fee for something they didn't actually have to search for but again most people don't have the resources most people don't have the time a court battle can be very tiring um it takes a long time and then you don't get the data in our case we could just tell the public about it and we got a very strong response when we shared this story when we shared these examples I tweeted about it in a Twitter thread and other people started jumping in with their own open records stories. One um, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter talked about the time that the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office tried to charge um, a little more than $60 to just answer the basic question of how many people are in the county jail right now. (laughs) She had asked the PIO and the PIO sent her over to an open records request and they tried to charge her for search time for that information. And she was saying, how do you not know at any given point how many people are in the jail right now? So other people started piling on their examples, parents and reporters. And I think it's something that resonates with people when 
it becomes information that you want. It becomes information that you realize you own, but also that you're going to use to make decisions, whether it's make decisions about who to vote for or how you advocate for your family or your children or a service that you're not getting or you think you should be getting. This is something that even if you've never filed a public records request in your life, it can affect so many aspects of your life if these fees are being used to prevent information from seeing the light of day. And that's a good time for us to take this off the record. Part of the podcast where we get a little more personal and have a little fun by answering a question we have not prepared for. And to ask us that question, once again, executive producer Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Hello, friends. Um, today's question, I almost said story. It's more of a question. Um, made me think a little bit, made me laugh. So hopefully it'll do the same for you. Um, what is your best scar story? I don't mean emotional scars. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> oh, I, I, I could go on for hours. I mean, how long is You guys have some time? What's the limit on a podcast? Yeah. Um, but a physical scar that maybe has a good story. I only have one. And it's what? not a very good story. Um, you only have one scar? I only have one scar. I, look, I had five younger brothers who were busy getting scars, like, scars. for everyone. <laughs> so basically, my main job growing up was to not get sent to the hospital because everyone else was. Um, that's, that's so. did, did you give any of them scars? Um, I mean, they might argue emotional scars. <laughs> um, I think, no, I, one of them, I broke his collarbone. Um, cause he was jumping, Savage. he was, uh, it, it was like, we were like jumping on the bed or something and I shoved him off and he, he broke his collarbone, but I don't think that led to any scars. No, I just have one, like, it's like the corner of my eyebrow. Um, and it was just from like, we were out in the backyard and the whole backyard was a sheet of ice. This was growing up in Manchester, New Hampshire. And as kids, we thought that was so cool. Cause it was basically like an ice rink in our backyard, so we were, quote, skating back there. And I um, was very into, like, Michelle Kwan. And I think, like, the Olympics were on at that point. And I tried uh, to do a, a jump and just fell on my face. So um, it probably required stitches, but I didn't get stitches. So now it's just this scar in the corner of my eyebrow that's in a really awkward location because it's very easy when like you know shaping my eyebrows it's very easy to take too much off and then half my eyebrows gone and that's mm, yeah i know all about that that's what mm. i got that's my what shaping i got of the eyebrows it's not a very good story that's literally that's my one scar well it's funny because i i don't know that i have like like if you're expecting like a wow i never knew that crazy thing happened to you brian i don't know if i have any great stories i feel like the i hate to say this i feel like the the people i've been in relationships with have more scars <laughs> than I do. And I don't even mean emotional. That's a whole other thing. But like, you know, for instance, now I, I'm, I'm married for the second time, but my, my first wife is the one who is the mother of my, my two kids and, and she had C-sections for both. So, so those are obviously very meaningful and important scars that, that, that come from that. I didn't suffer that. So I don't have anything, anything from that. Um, now my, my, my current wife, uh, who, um, 
is, is just wonderful and very healthy. She's, you know, she's in great, but she's had a lot of surgeries. She has had knee surgeries and um, she's had a hand surgery and a foot surgery and some others that I won't get into because they are far more personal, but she's been in the hospital a lot more than me. So I guess she's probably got the better scar stories than I have. Although I had one um, that uh, I had a surgery probably about seven years ago uh, on my left elbow. And, and there's a funny thing about this. It's not really the scar, but it's the story behind what led to it. So the, I, I was just having pain in my elbow and I, I ride a motorcycle. And if I hold my arm out at, uh, you know, if at the time I held my arm out straight for long periods of time, it would really start to hurt. And sometimes I couldn't fully extend my elbow to, to straight. It, it, I would have to keep it bent. And so on a motorcycle reaching out, it was really hard to ride for long distances that way. So I went to finally have it checked out. And what I realized over time is how it developed was um, I, I used to be much more of a night owl than I am now. And so I had a really hard time. And, and you're both mom, so you will get this. There's a period of time after your kids go to bed and before you go to sleep, especially when you have young children, that is a magical time. It is. Because it's your time. And I did not want to go to bed when they did because, like, no, this is my time. you're reclaiming your time. The older they get, the later that starts, so the later you want to stay up. And so I would fall asleep on the couch with the remote control in my hand (laughs) and my arm extended toward the TV. And you wake up hours later with an fully extended arm. And I did that night after night. And I would get up and I would put away the box of Cheez-Its, even if it was empty. And that's when I realized my elbow was hurting. And and I I was having some elbow pain. And I think I ultimately developed small bone chips that had to be removed. And I really think it's from those nights laying on the couch with my arm fully extended. And there's there's one more funny story, and I won't belabor things further, but when I had the surgery to remove the bone chips, they gave me a nerve block in my shoulder. Have you guys had a nerve block before? No. Okay. I don't think so. So no. I had never experienced one. It's one thing to be numb. It's another thing to completely lose all feeling in an entire appendage. And so they said for a while after the surgery, you aren't going to feel your arm at all from the shoulder down. You will feel nothing. You won't even know it's there. And so my arm was in a sling. And this was around Christmas time. And I had Christmas lights that you had to, I had to like bend down and plug them in. And so I'm down uh, sort of under the Christmas tree, day after surgery, bending down, trying to plug in the Christmas lights. And and one of the ornaments or something was getting in my eye and I'm swatting the thing away. And I realized I was swatting, uh, you hear that, I was swatting my elbow (laughs) that was in my face that I had no idea was there. Oh my God. Um, and it was the weirdest feeling ever. So if you ever have a nerve block, just beware that you will feel absolutely nothing. Oh, I thought um, this I, was going to be like arm. your arm was... ended up being a bloody mess because an ornament. Oh, no, no, too. it wasn't Me anything. Gra- and I was... no, it wasn't graphic. And then you it was just, like it was such surgery. a strange feeling. <laughs> it was such a strange feeling to have this entire appendage like hanging in my face that I'm swatting away. And I didn't even know it was there uh, because I couldn't feel it. So that's my scar story. Sarah, I think I suspect you must have a good one. They're good, but like you said, it's kind of like I just it's the memory of it or, you know, kind of what led to it. And so the the one the one of the first scars I think I ever got, I was probably six or seven. And I grew up um in the country. We didn't have sidewalks, it was just subdivisions. And um and so we went to my grandma and grandpa's in Ohio, and they lived on a city block. And so we would always and they lived on a corner, so we'd always run up and down the sidewalk around the corner. And I I 
didn't realize that not all sidewalks are just flat, wonderful, you know, surfaces. So I tripped on a sidewalk, you know, ledge where it was uneven. And I went down and I just gashed my knee. And and it was like a beautiful, like, square scar. It's like a very pretty <laughs> scar. It almost looks like a tic-tac-toe board. <laughs> anyway, I digress. But I, the thing I remember most is, have you guys ever had Bactine squirted oh, on a wound? Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. My mom did that, and I just howled. It was that's the most pain ever. I was like, See, I don't just know, let it bleed. I, <laughs> I don't know if that's like if that's I don't nobody anybody has Bactine anymore. I'm sure there's probably better ways of treating things. I don't know. I just remember growing up, you had Bactine and band aids, and yes. and so I don't have, I don't have like really a whole lot of scars from this. But as a kid, you ride bikes. We would wipe out in the street all the time. You scrape up your knee. Skin, you go yep. in. Mom sprays Bactine. You scream, and then you go back out and play some more. <laughs> and I mean, that, that and that smell. Childhood. Oh, it just, it just, it was. Uh, it's like the combination pain plus smell. This is the part of parenthood that really concerns me because I'm a huge baby when it comes to blood and oh, gore and broken bones, and I just think of all the all the blood and injuries from when I was growing up. And I don't, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. You, you know, I think when it's your, when it's your own, you just sort of jump into action. I, you know, as opposed to like, I, I'm almost more squeamish about it being me. When it's my kids, you just sort of go into like, okay, here's what we got to do. My, my son fell off of a, a slide at the playground once when he was probably maybe three years old. He wasn't, it wasn't very old. Um, but he was around the, like on the outside of a tube slide and fell off. And it was one of those like spongy kind of playground surfaces that I thought he's going to be fine, but he's crying. So he's probably scared. And I picked him up and I held him. And it was when all the blood started running down my shirt and my arm that I realized, Oh, he's cut his head open and he's bleeding everywhere. And he got, he got some stitches in his head, but that was one of those. You just go right into parent mode. You get, where's the nearest urgent care and let's go. And then let the doctors take care of it because I'm not sewing them up. That's for sure. The uh, the other quick wait, the other quick scar story I had. I was a kid and I had broken my finger, so I, we were swimming in some pool, but I had like a rubber glove on so I could swim. But I had to swim with my hand above my head <laughs> when I went underwater. I didn't care. It was summer. It was so hot. Anyway, not the story. But um, my brother, um, he was stealing the 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 goggles like the scuba goggles and they were like they were like the hefty ones that went over your eyes and your nose not just the little baby speedo ones and I kept asking for him and he didn't want to give them to me he finally got so hacked off that he just chucked them at me and they hit me in the lip the, like the hard plastic part just got blood gushing in the pool which made my neighbor super pumped um <laughs> but anyway so I still have the scar on my lip and don't think that I don't think about it still Kevin so anyway, that's all. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I don't I, I don't notice that, but you obviously know the scar is there and you sort of know the story behind it. And you'll always, always remember that. It's yeah. The beauty, you know, thanks. thanks, Kevin. That's the thing, though, that we realize is that scars, while they probably suck getting them, they do make for great stories later on, even for Kevin. Even for Kevin. <laughs> well, if anyone except Kevin has a question that they'd like to submit for our off the record segment. Or maybe you just want to suggest a topic we should discuss in general, an issue we should investigate. Please send us an email. You can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. And if you have your own scar story, send it to us. We'd love to hear about it. I don't know if we're going to talk about it on the air, but we might just be interested in what you have to say. Also, we don't need let pictures, us know. though. 
No, no pictures, but let us know if you still have Bactine. Because I do wonder how many people still have Bactine. In any case, as always, we want to thank the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson for Amanda St. Hilaire. We'll be back again next week. We'll be right back.